Let's join the worship center at Life Church, where the service is already in progress. We are in talking about the greatest story ever told. And you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been in these series on parables. And we've been talking about the stories that Jesus told while he was on the earth. Well, there's a story that happened before Jesus got here on the earth. Um, and, and it's very important to what we believe today. And it's very important to our whole entire foundation of our way of living. And so last week and this week, I told you that Josh and I have been putting this together and um, and we are going to be digging in to the study of Jesus' life. One year before he was on the earth, he made it onto the scene and then two years into his life. And last year we covered a whole year and I know everybody looked at the notes and they were like, oh Lord, six pages. And and But like Eric said at the end of service, I got you out 10 minutes earlier than you normally expect and we went through six pages of information. Mr. James got his clock on back there, I see it. Um, but uh, but um, today we have eight pages that we're going to go through. And I promise you, if we don't get through it today, we'll just get through it next week. So we're digging in because it's so important that we study out Jesus' life before he was even born, how he came to be on this earth, and what he did once he got on this earth. It's really important that we take a look at the greatest story ever told because in it we will find our redemption We will find our salvation. We will find how we are supposed to live and conduct ourselves in everyday life. And so that's why it's so important that we dig into the life of Jesus. And last week, we talked about Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and, and the story of how he came onto the scene and how he was a forerunner of Jesus. And we looked at the whole entire year before Jesus was born. Now this week, we're going to look at the first and second year of Jesus' life. How he came onto the scene. When he came onto the scene. And why it's important for us to look at it. And how it plays into our story while we're here on this earth. And so we got to go back to Luke. We've been studying in the book of Luke last week. It was chapter 1. This week it's chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. And this taxing was made first when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Don't you just love that they were even paying taxes back then? And so um, everybody got to be taxed. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into unto the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Which that in and of itself fulfills a prophecy that we find in the Old Testament about uh, the line, the lineage of when Jesus, who Jesus was going to be born through. So to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So let's take a look at what's going on in history real quick. 
You know, we we looked at what um, Luke wrote in his account. Remember last week we talked about how Luke just wanted to get things right. He wanted to make sure that he wrote down exactly what happened, exactly when it would happen, so we could know and understand and perceive the life of Jesus. And so... If we look in history during this time and we grab our history book out, um, it was the 25th year of the reign of Caesar Augustus. This was in 3 to 2 B.C. You know, the years went backwards. Um, you know, B.C., we, we all come to know before Jesus came. And so the years went backwards and then they started going forwards again uh, after Jesus arrived on the scene. So this was the 25th year of the reign of Caesar Augustus from 3 to 2 B.C. by the command of of Rome, because remember, they were under Roman leadership at the time. All subjects of the empire were required to register their support in naming the divine emperor Octavius Augustus um, the father of the Roman empire. So um, they wanted to tax everybody that was in the Roman empire. And so after the census had been taken and they took count of who was here and who wasn't here and where they lived, and you know how we get those census in the mail that we have to fill out that says who we are, where we live. And so they took a census. Everybody paid their taxes. They traveled to the city to be accounted for. Then the Roman Senate approved the tax on February 5th, 2 B.C., and then a statue was sculpted in Rome... Um, in 2 BC, and they used the tax money to do that with. So Caesar was busy declaring himself the leader. He was the divine emperor. He wanted people to look to him as the emperor, the reigner, the ruler, the king. But see, God had plans, even at that time, for another king to come on the scene. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And see, it's interesting to know that our Bible isn't just a storybook. Many times we look at our Bible as just a book of good stories. (laughs) Good stories for us to live by. But our Bible is way more than just a fairy tale. It's way more than just a storybook. You can link history with the Bible. And I wanted us to see that today when we study out the life of Jesus. We can link our history books and what we know from history down with the Bible because the the Bible is real. It really did happen. Jesus really did come. History tells us. The Bible tells us. All of creation shows that there is a God. Remember how we talked about last week. God is constantly pointing us back to him. He constantly is looking for us to rely on him and want to be with him and want to, to, to come to know him deeper. And so all of history, all of the Bible, all of creation points us back to God. Every single bit of it. Hey, honey, do you mind turning on the air? I'm about to melt. And if I'm about to melt, I bet y'all are about to turn into puddles. Because it's not every day that I break a sweat. And that sounded bad, but y'all know I stay cold. Luke 2, verses 3 through 5. So we see in history, Jesus really did come on the scene. The the emperors and, and the rulers of the day that were mentioned in the Bible actually happened in history. This is more than just a fairy tale. This is more than just a great little story to try to get everybody to be moral and good. The Bible is real. It is living. It is the Word of God. And it really did 
happen. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, we see Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with his Mary, his wife, being great with child. And while she was there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So the decree had to cause Joseph to go home to Bethlehem to pay the tax. And not only would he have to pay the tax for himself, but he also would have to pay the tax for his wife. And so, um, and the baby on the way. So he had to pay even more tax. So Joseph was going in faith, knowing that God would provide for them on their journey. Now let's look at the book of Revelation. Because I want us to look at something that I hadn't really realized until recently. You know how we always hear and the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and, and they speak the truth about God? Well, I want to show you how that really happened. Look at Revelations 12, 1 and 2. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, in pain, and delivered. So what in the world does Revelation 12 have to do with the birth of Jesus? I want to tell you something neat. You know that we always have heard, uh, you know, what's your sign? And we have all these constellations. And we have um, Leo and, and, and Virgo and all these things that we look up in the stars. And we can see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and all this stuff. The heavens declare the glory of God. Did you know that the constellations tell the Bible story? They tell the Bible story. So again, God is constantly pointing us to him. You can look at the grass of the field and know if he takes care of that, he'll take care of you. You can look at the heavens and the earth and see the constellations and you can see the Bible from the end to the beginning laid out in in the conjunctions of all the constellations. The heavens declare the glory of God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, a lot of these things that we don't understand, like um, uh, the dragons and all these different things, are, are star and, and constellation events and conjunctions of planets. And goodness knows, we don't have time to get into those today because we got eight pages of notes to make it through about the birth of Jesus. But the heavens declare the glory of God. So what does this scripture in Revelation have to do with Jesus being born? Well, it's talking about the birth of Jesus. The sign that has been observed by Israel since the appointed time was given in the wilderness. And this sign is the Feast of Trumpets. And it has to do with Revelation 12. Remember last week we talked about God's calendar and how it's different than our calendar. He doesn't have January, February, March, April, May. He goes by the moon cycles and the barley harvest. And we talked a lot about that last week. And the notes are back there. There's six pages of it. If I go into that, we won't get into this. But God has a separate calendar from what we use today. Remember, everything constantly points back to God. Everything is pushing us to rely on Him, to lean into Him, to press into Him. Not to look to our own way of doing things, but to look to His way of doing things. So why wouldn't His calendar be the same? Why wouldn't it have to rely on God? And in his calendar, you know, we have different days that we look at as important. Well, God has different days that he looks at as important. 
He calls them appointed times or holy convocations in the Bible. And one of these appointed times is the Feast of Trumpets. These appointed times, if you look in the Hebrew, are called mikra. That's the Hebrew name for them. And it's a public meeting, a rehearsal. So God's appointed times are rehearsing things to come. Remember, God is always trying to point us back to him. He's always looking for us to rely on him. So all of these appointed times, all of these feasts, all of these special days on God's calendar are going to be pointing us back to him and his deliverance and his salvation and what he wants to do in our life. And on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the names of all these appointed times, all these special things, all these rehearsals that would lay out the whole rest of the, the, our time here on earth. All the major events that have happened have happened around God's special days. His special days are Passover, unleavened bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonements, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this next year, as these days happen on God's calendar, we're going to stop. Whatever series we're doing, whatever we're doing in our, our thing, we're going to stop and we're going to look at God's days. Because I think it's important that we understand them because even the birth of Jesus revolved around God's special days. And so our life today will revolve around his special days. Even though we may not see it, we may not understand it, God's time clock revolves around these special days, his calendar. And so we're going to take time this next year to learn what his special days are and what they mean and why it's important for us to know it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Feast of Trumpets because that's when Jesus was born. Jesus was born on the Feast of Trumpets. And why wouldn't he be? Man, I I should have brought my trumpet over here. My hubby has never heard me play the trumpet. He's been begging me to play the trumpet. I told him we'd work something up one day and and I'd finally play. Since he's known me, he's seen that trumpet sitting in the closet but never heard me blow the thing. So why wouldn't Jesus come on the Feast of Trumpets? A trumpet is a, a signal, a sounding alarm, a, a sign of, of a heralding that something is happening. It can be alarming and welcoming all at the same time. And y'all know my dad, how he likes to pick and play and whatnot. And you've heard him tell this story and you've heard me tell this story. But it goes along with what we're talking about today. When I was in uh, younger, um, I think I was in like seventh grade band or something like that. I had this old practice trumpet. The thing was beat up, had a hole in a valve. I mean, it really wasn't. I mean, it was sad. It was a sad little puppy. And so my dad thought that he would be really cool one Saturday morning when I was sleeping in. He decided to sneak into my closet, get this old trumpet out. Now, you have to know that my dad doesn't know how to play a trumpet, not one bit has no skill on the thing at all. So he gets this old trumpet out. I'm surprised he knew how to put the mouthpiece in it, but he got it all figured out. And while I was asleep, he stood in the doorway of my bed, bedroom, and he laid down on that thing and made the most ungodly noise I have ever heard. It sounded like a dying cow. I mean, it was bad. 
And I was dead asleep. And all of a sudden, I know what the rapture is going to be like. I have practiced, okay? I've had rapture drill. And so that noise, it levitated my whole body. My whole body was stiff as a board. It shook up in the air, came off the bed, and flopped back down. I was alarmed. Needless to say, it was not a very silent morning at the Doggett household that day. I came out of that bed and he was about to fall on the floor laughing at me. He had never seen something so funny in his entire life. He was heralding that it was time to get up, that it was time to get ready, that it was time to get up and do some stuff because he had some plans for me that day and he wanted me up and about and on my way. So why wouldn't Jesus come on God's special day called the Feast of Trumpets when, when the trumpets are blown and the, 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 the way is made, the time of heralding has come? Why wouldn't Jesus arrive when we were making noise uh, to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as a heralding sign that the Son of God has arrived? So every year on the Feast of Trumpets, which is the first day of the seventh month, and if you want to know when the seventh month is, you've got to look at the notes from last week because it all depends on the barley harvest and the new moons. But we see that sign mentioned in Revelation 12. The woman clothed with the sun is the sign Betula, which is the Hebrew word for Virgo or the virgin. So they see the constellation of the virgin in the sky. And that at the time of the Feast of Trumpets when Jesus was born, the crown of 12 stars is the, the 12 constellations pictured for each one of the of, of Israel, the son of Israel in Genesis 49. So Jacob laid out which sons of Israel represented which constellations in Genesis 49. And we don't have time to get into that. But that would be something good for you to read this next week. Read Genesis 49 and see how Jacob prophesied and laid out all the signs in the heavens. And so the crown of the stars are the 12 constellations for the 12 sons of Israel in Genesis 49. And 2,000 years ago, because we can go back, because technology has provided us a way to go back and see what the constellations looked at like at this time. Let me tell you how cool God is. Not only did he want the barley to be ripe on a certain day and the moon to function in a certain time so that Zechariah would be in the temple like we talked about last week, but... He also set up a sign in the heaven because the year that Jesus was born, the, um, the, the, the sun actually was in the belly of the Virgo, the virgin sign. So the sun was in the belly in the year that Jesus was born. How cool is that? Again, God is pointing everything back to him. Everything goes back to him. He's announcing that Jesus is on the scene. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are declaring that it's time for Emmanuel. God is with us to arrive. The Feast of Trumpets are saying he is coming. But through the progression of all the equinoxes, now the sun sits on her shoulder, clothing her with the sun. So that's where the sun sits now, if we were to go out and look at the constellations. So we know that the sun is really a reference to Jesus, 
the son of righteousness in Malachi 4.2. Malachi 4.2 says, But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Again, everything, the stars in the sky, every single thing is pointing us back to our Creator. It's pointing us back to Jesus. It's saying there is a God and I have a plan. Walk in my way and you will live. Every single thing points back to God. So the virgin is a picture of Israel, the bride of the covenant. So how awesome is God that during the appointed time Jesus would arrive on the scene, even the stars were declaring, He is here. Emmanuel, God with us. The constellations were crying out, The Savior is coming. So the Feast of the Trumpets begins with the sighting of a new moon. We talked about that last week. It's a tiny sliver that appears after three nights of total darkness. And in Revelation, this sign heralds the two witnesses. So what does this have to do? Well, in the coming times as the book of Revelation unfolds before us, we'll see this sign again heralding the two witnesses. And in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the sign announces the birth of Jesus with the blowing of trumpets. So yes, Jesus is here. The trumpets have blown. Emmanuel, God with us, has arrived. Now in the year, um, well, let's look at Numbers 29.1 real quick. It says, In the seventh month on the first day of the month, you will have a holy convocation. Remember, that's a mikra, an appointed time. You'll do no work, and it's the day of the blowing of the trumpets unto you. So, in the year Jesus was born, we can look at how the constellations progress, and we know that his star is seen on this day, on September the 12th. If we go back and we look at the charts, because we have the technology that lets us do that now. So there's quite a bit of controversy over what his star actually was. But because of the increasing knowledge, we know that his star... Y'all didn't know we were getting a science lesson today. But even science declares that there is a God. Even science can point us back to God. Man has taken scientific knowledge and disrupted it and, and, and tried to make something of it that it's not. But God says, even in the beginning, even in the knowledge that you gain scientifically and astronomically, there is a God. There is a God. So, this year... His star was in conjunction, uh, was the conjunction of Jupiter and Regulus. So those two things conjuncted, or that means they cross paths. That's what a conjunction is. And so the king star, a Regulus is the king star between the feet of Ariel or Leo, the lion. And that again is mentioned in Genesis 49. All of these are laid out in Genesis 49. Even the heavens declare the glory of God. So why is it important that we talk about stars on a Sunday morning? God loves us so much 
that he wanted us to have every single opportunity that we could to know that he is real, to know that he is longing for a relationship, to know that he wants a restoration of our relationship with him after the fall of man, to know that while we might have messed up from the the beginning of time, even before he said, let there be, he had a plan. And he wanted to give us every single opportunity that we could to see that plan, to be surrounded by the foreshadowing of the plan, and to be able to know for sure there is a God. I've been asked many times before, well, how do I know that God is real? How do I know that he really has a plan for me? There are billions of people on this earth. How do I really know that God cares about me? If we begin to study history in conjunction with the Bible, in conjunction with what God is doing in the sky and what he's doing on earth in in the current day, and we can look and see that he's already mentioned it in Revelation, and we start putting these things together, and we start tying it up in this nice little package, there is no choice but to believe that God is real and He loves us. He loves us so much that He designs signs for us to see all around us saying, Yes, I am real. Yes, I am coming to you. Yes, I want a relationship with you. So why is it important for us to talk about stars on a Sunday morning? God loves you that much that he put them up there at a specific time. He made them pass over each other and make pictures in the sky to where you would know there is a God and he has a plan and he is your deliverer. That's why we talk about stars on a Sunday morning. Genesis 49.10 mentions this conjunction that I just talked about, about Jupiter and Regulus. The scepter of the leadership shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the Messiah, the peaceful one, comes, whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. That's laying out the sign in the sky that you look for. So this conjunction, this passing over one another, didn't just happen one time, but it happened eight times over a 16-month period starting on August 1st. God wanted every opportunity for us to see, yes, the king is here. He's arrived. He's on the scene. He wanted to make it clear for those who are looking for him. Remember how we've talked about in the parables so far that we've got to be watchful and we've got to be waiting because Jesus is coming? Well, he wanted to give a sign to those who are waiting for the Messiah the first time. Jesus is coming. Look to the heavens and you will see Jesus is coming. Look to the stars, you will see Jesus is coming. He is here. So that's why this sign, it conjuncted several times. He wanted people to know, I am here. I am on the scene. Your Savior has come. And then it conjuncted again on the Feast of the Trumpet, September 12, 3 B.C. We are told in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you look up that word dwelt in its original meaning, it's the word tabernacle, take up residence. That's September 26, 3 B.C. Elizabeth, being six months pregnant, when Mary came to visit her, would put the birth of Jesus 
at the next high Sabbath of the tabernacles. So, at Feast of Trumpets, Jesus is coming. We're announcing he's soon to arrive on the scene. Then we come to his next appointed time, the next rehearsal, the next holy convocation, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when Jesus arrives because John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Everything around us points us back to God. Everything around us says God is real and he has a real plan for you. And if he can, he, if he can cause all of these small, tiny details to line up all at once, how much more can he take care of you? How much more can he, he care for you and comfort you and be there for you? How much more does that give you faith and hope that he has a good plan for your life and he wants to do good and not evil for you? So why was there no room in the inn? Why do we find Jesus not being able to find a spot? We know he was born in a manger there was, because there was no room in the inn. And knowing that there was no room in the inn tells us that this was one of the three appointed times, the three feasts that every man of Israel must attend. See, everything revolves around God's calendar. Three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. We'll get more in depth about in those next year. Those are the three times a year when all the men have to go and be accounted for, for the feast. So hundreds and thousands of people would be flocking into Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, arriving for the feast. And so Jerusalem and the surrounding area was full of hotels and and inns because they'd been commanded by God to show up three times a year. And they needed a place to lodge everybody. That's how we know that Jesus was born. That's another confirmation that Jesus was born on one of his appointed days because it was one of the times where there was no room at the inn. All the inns were full. Nobody was a, nobody had an empty spot. You can even see this because during Christ's last Passover, the last supper, he and his disciples were in one of these upper rooms. And Bethlehem is a suburb only five miles away from Jerusalem. So here they are. Why are they in an inn? Why was there no room in the inn? Because we were at one of God's appointed times, one of his holy days, one of his convocations that he set apart for us to remember him. So here they are at the inn, or in the manger. There's no room at the inn, and the shepherds arrive. Isn't it neat to dig in deeper to the birth of Jesus? I hope that you're seeing a lot more than just a nice little story that we tell each other to know that the Savior has arrived. We can actually see that, man, this lines up with history. The history books confirm that there is a God. The sky confirms that there is a God. The entire earth confirms that there is a God. Everything points us back to Jesus, to God, to his redemption plan. So Luke chapter 2, the shepherds arrive, verses 8 through 20. And in the vicinity there were shepherds living out under an open sky in a field, watching in shifts over their flock by night. And behold, the angel stood by them, and the glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them, and they were terribly frightened. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come um, to, to all people. For unto you is born this day in the town of David a Savior, who is Christ the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. Again, pointing us back to God, confirming with signs and wonders. This will be a sign for you by which you will recognize him. You will find after searching a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Swaddling clothes is important. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then suddenly there appeared with, an, with the angel an army of troops of heaven, a, a heavenly knighthood, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said "Let us to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. We got to see this. In South Arkansas terms, that's like, Hey man, get ready. We got to go see this. Let's see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste by searching and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known what had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it were astounded and marveled at what the shepherds told him. But Mary was keeping within herself all these things and weighing and pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, just as it had been told unto them. So swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What's so important about swaddling clothes? Why is this important to Jesus' birth? You have to know about swaddling. Swaddling was made out of old, worn-out priest clothing. And it was kept to be used for candle wicks in the temple and for swaddling the sons of kings. So why swaddling clothes? God was wanting us to know this is the king of kings. He was wrapped in the garment of a king, even from birth. Again, Pointing us back to God. Pointing us back to His plan. Saying, I am real. I am here. The Word made flesh and dwelling among us. And then the word manger is just another word for a sukkah or a tabernacle. And every man 13 years or older is required to build a sukkah and live in a temporary shelter for seven days to commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness. So again, God is fulfilling all the things that he talked about in the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus 23, verses 34 through 44. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you will afflict yourselves with fasting and humility. And on the ninth day of the month, from evening to evening, you will keep your Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, to the Lord. So this is the feast that Jesus was born during. On the first day, it it shall be a holy convocation. Remember, that's a rehearsal of things to come. You will do no work on that day. For seven days you'll make offering made by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day is a holy rehearsal, a holy convocation, a, a rehearsal for things to come. And you will present an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You do no work on that day. And these are the set feast or appointed seasons of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation to present offerings made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a cereal offering, sacrifices and drink offerings on each on its own day. 
This is in addition to the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts and all your vowed offerings and your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. And on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, nearly October, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you will keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And so this happens in between September and October, depending upon the barley harvest. Remember, everything points back to God. The first and the eighth day each a Sabbath. And on the first day you will take the fruit of pleasing trees and make booths of them. That's the sukkah and branches of palm trees and boughs of thick leaves, leafy trees and willows by the brook. And you will rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You will keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. A statute forever throughout your generation. And you will keep it in the seventh month. You will dwell in these shelters for seven days. All native Israelites will dwell in these booths, that your generation may know that I made the Israelites dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am your Lord, your God. And thus Moses declared to the Israelites to set the appointed feast of the Lord. So, why were they in a manger? Why were they doing this? It was the Feast of the Lord. It was the time of tabernacles. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what they did. That's how we can know that, again, Jesus is here. It's another sign. He come to tabernacle in us. So Jesus is officially named. That happened on October 3rd, 3 B.C., Luke 2.21. At the end of eight days, when the baby was to be circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So why did they do this? Why did they circumcise him on the eighth day? Why did they name him then? Because God had made a law in Leviticus. Leviticus 12.3 And on the eighth day the child shall be circumcised. So again, they're going by God's commands. They're doing God's things in God's ways. And again, everything is happening to point us back to God. To fulfill what Jesus came to do. Then Mary goes through the purification according to the law. And that's 40 days long. In Luke 2.22, it says, When the time of her purification came according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So why did Mary do that? Because of what God said in Leviticus 12.4. She shall remain separated 33 days to be purified from her loss of blood. She shall touch no hollowed thing or come into the court of the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are over. Remember how a couple of weeks ago when we were talking in parables that as the householder, as the keeper of the house, God wants us to mix the old uh, teaching with the new teaching. He was talking about how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together to declare his wonders on the earth. We can see, even with the birth of Jesus, the Old Testament, and as the New Testament is being lived out before it's even written down, the two are coming into alignment. So, in the next scripture, we find out that Mary pays the redemption price for Jesus. But she pays the price for the poor. Why is that important? Well, that further gives us a timeline of when Jesus came on the scene. The price for the poor is two turtle doves. If she would have had money, she would have been required to bring a yearling, a first year lamb as well. So this clues us into the fact that the wise men hadn't come yet. 
The shepherds have come, but not the wise men. Because if the wise men had come, she would have had to pay the, she would have had to do the yearling, the first lamb, the first year lamb sacrifice as well. Because she would have had great financial resources because of the gifts that the wise men brought. Luke 2, 23-24 as, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb will be set apart and dedicated to the Lord. And they came and offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if we look back in Leviticus 12, remember we're pointing the new back to the old and the old to the new. Everything works together to declare there is a God and He has a plan. And if His plan is this intricate all these thousands of years ago, how much more intricate is it in our lives today where He has things planned out for us because He loves us and He wants good for us? I hope that us digging into the life of Jesus is giving you great faith that if God cares this much about this, to even orchestrate how the stars go in the sky, that he cares so much about you. He loves us, and he does have a plan for our life. So when the days of her purifying were complete, Leviticus uh, 12.6, whether a son or a daughter, she brings a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering to the tent of meeting to the priest. And he will offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. She shall be cleansed of the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female child. If she's unable to bring a lamb because of a lack of means, she shall bring two turtle doves or young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest will make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So, after all that happens, there are several more conjunctions of Jesus' star after the Feast of Tabernacles. Those dates are there, and you can look at them. Now, when the eighth conjunction happens, that's when the wise men arrive. Around, on December 20th, 2 B.C. And we will know this by looking at the scripture. Matthew 2, 1-2. through 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea... The days of King Herod the king. Behold, wise men, astrologers from the east, came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. So they are looking for the sign in the heavens. Now how in the world are they going to know to look at the constellations? How in the world are they going to know to be looking for this sign? Who told them that this was going to happen? The wise men leave for Jerusalem about five weeks prior to the final conjunction. And they arrive at Herod's place to ask the king, where is this special king who has been born? We don't know 100% for sure exactly who those wise men were that arrived. But if you do some researching... The most logical answer is that Daniel set a plan in motion back in the days of the Old Testament that would cause the wise men so many hundreds of years later to see the sign in the sky and know to go to Jesus. How do we know that? Daniel was a eunuch. He didn't have any kids. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have any descendants. 
And God told Daniel so many things about Jesus. If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesies so much about Jesus in the end of the age. We know a lot about what God is going to do in the days that we live in now because of Daniel in the Old Testament. God told Daniel to write some things down for people to read on the scrolls. He also told Daniel to hide some things and to not tell anybody for a while. So the most logical thing is that Daniel made provisions for these wise men to be able to see the star and take all of these gifts to Jesus. And it's important that he gets these gifts because he's going to have to flee for his life pretty soon. And these finances, all of these gifts, all of this treasure is going to be the mechanism that allows Jesus and Mary and Joseph to get out of harm's way, as we'll see here in a few minutes. Again, everything points us back to God. Were there exactly three wise men? We don't know. We know that the Bible mentions three gifts, but most scholars, if you do the research, believe that there were more than three wise men that saw the sign and traveled to go and take all of this treasure to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Look at Matthew 2, 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. So why? Because he thought his kingdom was being challenged. He thought that he was about to lose power, and he did not like the idea of losing power at all. So he gathered together all the chief priests and the learned men, the scribes of the people, and anxiously asked them where Christ was to be born. And they replied to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are, you are not in any way least or insignificant among the, chiefs of the, city, uh, the chief cities of Judah. For you shall... For from you shall come a ruler, a leader, who will govern and shepherd my people. Then Herod sent for the wise men, the astrologers, secretly and accurately to the last point, ascertained from them the time of the appearing of the star. That is, how long the star had made itself visible since its rising in the east. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search for the child carefully and diligently. And when you found him, bring me word that I can come and worship. But see, Herod didn't really want to worship. He wanted to get rid of the threat to his power. So now we come to December 21st, Matthew 2, 9 through 12. When they had listened to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star, which had been seen in the east in its rising, went before them until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they were thrilled and ecstatic with joy. And on going into the house, they saw the child Mary. Now look, they're in a house now. So they're not in a manger anymore. Now they've moved into a house. So, they saw Mary and the child, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasure bags, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they departed to their own country a different way. So they leave Jerusalem and see the star directly over the house of Bethlehem. And it would take them about an hour on foot to lead them straight to the house. 
So Zachariah and Elizabeth lived in Bethlehem, so perhaps they were at their house. It doesn't say specifically whose house they were at. But the wise men worship the Messiah and then leave because they know Herod is on their way. Herod is on his way because he's mad. He's heard about a king that's supposed to be above all other kings, and he wants to get to him before this king grows up and becomes the ruler. Matthew two eleven through 12. Going in the house, they saw the child, Mary, with his mother, and they gave him the gifts, and they went, they went back a different way home. So they didn't go by Herod again. So December 22nd, most, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee. Matthew two thirteen through 15. Now after they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in the middle of a dream and said, Get up! Take unto you the young child and his mother and flee Egypt. Remain there, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you otherwise. For Herod intends to search for the child to destroy him. And having risen, he took the child and his mother by night, withdrew to Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So the wise men have come with their gifts, and that gives Mary and Joseph the financial ability to run for their life. And so they take off to Egypt. And then Herod realizes that he had been misled in Matthew 2, verse 16, and was furiously enraged, and he sent to be put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that territory who were two years old and under, reckoning according to the date that he had investigated diligently and had learned exactly from the wise men. So where did he get two years old and younger? From the time that the stars was conjuncting. They looked back, the astrologers looked back and saw when the stars had conjuncted and knew two years old and younger, that's what Jesus was by this point. So Herod is thinking, if I can just get all these kids killed, I'll be able to maintain my power. But God, again, was making provisions. Even before Herod had the thought to kill him, God made provisions by the wise men for them to be able to flee and escape. Now remember Zechariah and John the Baptist, the baptizer? Well, why do you think John the Baptist grew up in the wilderness? His family fled too. Why does it... I mean, we see when John the baptizer comes on the scene, he's a crazy guy. Well, you know, people would think today he was crazy. He had grown up in the wilderness. He had been eating locust and honey most of his life. Well, why would he be in the wilderness? Because Herod was trying to kill all the people two years old and younger, and John was one of them. And so if we study out history... And we look at the scrolls that weren't included in the Bible that we know today, but were a part of the detail of history of that time. We can see that Zechariah is murdered in the temple. Elizabeth flees to the wilderness with John. The, John. And then we can look at the history to know that there's a massacre of all the innocents in the land. And they kill all the babies... And they had even killed two priests, burning them alive on the night of an eclipse. This is all detailed in our history. The eclipse can only be the one on January the 10th, 1 BC, only a few weeks from the December 23rd massacre. So they massacre the babies on December 23rd. They, they kill the priest on January the 10th. 
And soon after he murdered the rabbis, Herod got ill and went to the Dead Sea and retired in Jericho. And Caesar sent a letter to him telling him to either exile or kill his son. And so he decides to have his son killed. And Herod died five days later after that. So then his other son had a lavish funeral and mourned for seven days. And fearing a revolt, he slaughtered 3,000 more priests on the temple mount and canceled Passover that spring. So then the ruler has to go to Rome to answer for his actions and a rebellion broke out in Judea. And the general came to squash the rebellion and rob the ruler of his treasure sent an army to the countryside to punish the troublemakers and crucified over 2,000 people because of the revolt. And we find that in the scripture, Matthew 2, 19-23. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Rise, take unto you the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. See, all that had to happen to make it safe for Jesus to return again. Then he awoke and rose and took his child and his mother and the child's mother and came to the land of Israel. And because he had heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judah in the place of his father Herod, see, look, history and scripture coming into alignment. There is a God. He has a plan. He loves us. And he's so intricate with his plan. If he was this intricate with this plan, how much more is he intricate with our plan? And being divinely warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee and went and dwelled in a town called Nazareth so that it was spoken through the, pro- the, through the prophets and might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Every single thing that happened lined up with every single thing God had foreshadowed in the Old Testament. God loves us so much. The heavens declare... The glory of God. He loves us. He cares for us. He has a plan for us. And as we walk into our calendar new year, remember, this isn't God's calendar new year, but we're getting ready. This is the last Sunday of 2015. As we walk into a new year, I want us to be more mindful of God's appointed times because if his appointed times laid out the whole entire plan for Jesus to arrive and got people from hundreds of years ago to look for the sign of Jesus coming, we're given over and over in the parables that we've already looked at to be watchful and waiting for the Son of Man is going to return, to be on guard because Jesus is coming. And we can look at the signs that he's given us in the Old Testament and the New Testament to know that we are living in the last days. And it's time to get ready to be with the Lord again and to bring as many people with us as we can. God has a plan. Everything he does points us back to him, points us to his love for us, points us to the Savior and the Healer. And I challenge us in this new year to not line up God with our plan, but to conjunct our lives, line up our lives with His plan and His way and walk in it. Let's stand. God, we thank You 
that you have a plan and that you love us and you care for us so much that you would go to all these links to tell us you are real. Thank you for joining us today. We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at Post Office Box 1004. That's P.O. Box 1004, Monticello, Arkansas, 71657. Or you can email us at lci.monticello at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also check out our website. It's www.getlife.co. That's www.getlife.co. There you can find Pastor Kelly and Pastor Josh's sermon notes, and you can see what's going on all through the week at Life Church. We would love to have you in one of our services with us. Join us Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. for our worship service. Pastor Kelly ministers, and it's a great time in the presence of God. Or you can join us for Digging Deep on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Pastor Josh digs into the Word of God, connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament and giving us a fresh biblical perspective from God's point of view. We hope that you have a great week this week. Remember, go live to make God look good. God bless you till we're with you again.